Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Bill's lesson today is in Luke chapter 18, titled, Jesus on Evangelism, Part 2. Hello and good morning and welcome. How many of you, this is your first time ever in this church? Never been here before? Not sure if you're coming back? Hey, <laughs> I understand. Glad that you're here. We, we run a lot of people through this church, and I don't mean in a bad way. It's just that here we are. Where, where else are you going to go? You had to turn around and go back to wherever you're from because there's nothing through here to anywhere else. So uh, one of the blessings and ministries of this church is ministering to people who visit here, and sometimes only for a Sunday, and that's, that's just fine. We believe that God brought you here, and uh, it's our responsibility to bring to you whatever he has for us. Uh, we wake up in a new world every day, uh, just like you, but our God is way ahead of us in all things, and so we trust him for uh, what he enables us to do, the ministries he uh, allows us to have. We're in Luke chapter 18, preaching through that as a church, uh, studying through that on Sunday mornings. The, not chapter 18, well, yes, but through the book of Luke. We find ourselves in chapter 18. In fact, we're going to be going over uh, something we were in last week, which is this... Uh, address this circumstance that is otherwise known as the rich guy called rich young ruler. Chapter 18, verse 18, a man who thought he was saving himself by how good he was, and yet he was coming to the Savior and uh, wouldn't hear him. So let's see if we can't do what he didn't do. A certain ruler questioned Jesus saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, first of all, he's asking the right person. Second of all, he's asking the right question. I mean, what more important question to have than that? But in our evangelical circles, we would have not done what Jesus did. From here point on, it all it diverts from that. I mean, this is the best seeker there is. I mean, you can't get a better seeker than a person who's coming to Jesus saying, what must I do to have eternal life? But Jesus takes him, he doesn't say, first of all, notice carefully, he doesn't say, I'm the Savior, accept me as Savior. He doesn't say it. Why? Why? You would have told him that, but Jesus doesn't. So, so maybe there's something we can learn. I would say, as opposed to, uh, if you're going to put them side by side, how good of, who's the best evangelist, you or Jesus? I'm, I'm going to go with Jesus on this. I would suggest that we all do that, because Jesus knows what he's doing. He doesn't offer the guy salvation, because it does, even though we ask the question, it's not, ask, not looking for a savior. He, he thinks he's the savior himself. Most people will. Most people do. The people who are outside of Christ, even people who are in church, who are not accepting Christ, they, because here's why, they think they're their own savior. I'm, I'm good enough. Heaven's a place where the balances, you know, tilt in the direction of good. And I'm better than most people I know, so boom, I'm in. And that's a common mistaken, I should say, demonic uh, understanding. That's going to send a lot of people to hell. Many, many sincere people are going to be in heaven. I mean, in hell. Many people who thought they would never make it into heaven are going to be there because they trusted Christ as their way of salvation instead of trusting themselves. As opposed to this young man. Let's keep going. Why do you call me good, Jesus says. No one is good except God. It's critical, critical doctrine right there critical. As long as you think you're good, Jesus isn't for you. Therefore, neither is heaven. As long as you think you're good enough, Jesus isn't for you. You don't need a Savior because you've got one. You're no different than this man. Heaven also isn't for you because it's going to be where Jesus is. Not good, no, because no one is good except God alone. Good and compared to what? Good better than me, maybe so. Me better than you, maybe so. Good enough for heaven? Certainly not. No one is. This guy thought he was. 
He says, you know the commandments so that Jesus doesn't send him to himself as a savior, sends him back to the word of God, which he had not learned from at this point. Back to the law, back to the teachings of the law. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not uh, bear false witness. Give us in the bottom five, if you will, not the top five, because he's breaking the number one, which is have no other gods before me. Because he got himself a God. It's his stuff. And Jesus puts his finger directly on it by just giving him a simple question. As we're going to see, the man says, no, I've kept all these for my youth. So you're perfect in those things. Okay. Well, here's one thing you may not be doing so well at. One thing you still lack, verse 22, sell all that you possess, distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Oh, well, he couldn't do that because why? That's his God. That's, he, that's him. He, he trusts himself to this, to his stuff. But when he heard this, it says he became very sad and was extreme, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. That's a huge statement in their culture. Because rich people were considered to be marked for heaven by their wealth in, in their religious system. God has marked you for heaven. The poor people, we're not sure if they're going or not. But the rich people, we know that they are. So that's why God gives them riches. And again, where do they get this from? Out of demonic teachings, not, not out of the scriptures at all. So, so Jesus says, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, they thought the wealthy don't make it. None of us can. That's what they say. He says, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle. Then for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They heard it, it says, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus says, that ah, excellent. Excellent. Next step, you need to know that you're not good. Number two, you need to know you can't save yourself. Excellent. The things that are impossible for men, it's impossible for you to save yourself, are possible with God and nowhere else. You're going to salvation through anyone else other than God's son, Jesus. You, will not, you cannot be saved because you cannot save yourself. So, so we saw last time, we began looking at this passage, and we saw uh, the fact of our misplaced faith, it seems, in evangelical circles. We've allowed ourselves to be taught into believing our ability to deliver the message as opposed to the message itself. Our, our vehicle, whether it be our preachers or our churches or our ministries or our organization or our beauty, and, all, and again, should we have all those things? I think we should. But don't ever, ever trust those things. Because it is definitely not the messenger. It's not the vehicle that gets it there. It is always the message. Remember last time? Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Not your great preacher or your great ministry or your beautiful church or whatever ministry, part, missions you're, you're involved in. All those things are great and good, but don't put your faith in those things. Put your faith in the word of God. Paul underscores this. He did in chapter 1. The gospel, notice is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not our tons of money and our tons of influence and our great intellectual educations and all these things. And again, I, I, I don't have tons of money, but I have all that other stuff, at least some of it. But none of that stuff saves people. It does not. Again, we, we worry greatly, uh, and not to say that we shouldn't, who our pastors are. We, we should be very careful who you call leadership of your churches. But we're very much interested how, how well, much more interested, I should say, how he looks on a billboard as compared to where his stance really is on the scriptures and the gospel in his heart for that real ministry. We worry a whole lot more about his education. We worry a whole lot more about his experience. I, I really, as far as leadership's concerned, I only want to know one thing. The scripture only wants to know one thing. If you're going to lead me, I want to know where you're, stick out your hand to me. Say, follow me, because that's what leaders do. I want to know where your other hand is. 
Because if you can't put your hand in the hand of Jesus, well, then I can't follow you. Because that's all you got to offer me as a leader, that you're following him. So we should be much more interested. Are we following what Jesus said? Oh, here we have Jesus on evangelism. Trust the, what? The message, not the messenger. Messengers come and go. Messenger, we saw, saw last time, the, the sower of the seed, the word of God is the seed. Says nothing about the sower, nothing about his education, nothing about his spin on the seed, none of that stuff. All about the message. All about the seed itself. The seed is the thing that does the work. The gospel, not the preacher, not the church, not the ministry, not the music, not the messenger, not the vehicle delivery. None of those things save anyone. Now, they grow huge churches. But don't mistake the physical church for the spiritual church. I wish they were the same. But they are not. And anymore, as our evangelical churches are less and less focusing on the text of Scripture as opposed to trusting in ministry, our churches are growing more and more full of people who are unconverted. Just my opinion. But it has to be so, because how can we have such huge churches when, and we have so little effect on our culture? Back in the day, I don't know how it is with the Methodists and the Presbyterians, and I think, actually, I do know, we were all little bitty churches. Little bitty churches. All our pastors were bivocational. And yet we had huge impact and influence over our culture and our world. Today, we're massive. We got, you know, weirdos like me with all kinds of degrees and abilities and experience, and yet where's our influence? You know, like I always say, where's the beef? I don't see it. Remember, our, our problem, our main problem, and the, the, the critical issue with trusting ourselves over trusting the message is that our real job is raising the dead. People aren't just lost out of Christ. They're dead without Christ. Dead in their trespasses and sins, it says very clearly. So can you raise the dead? Yeah, I mean, neither. What kind of formula are we going to put? What, how is my education or yours or our experience or our beautiful stained glass going to raise a dead person? Cannot. It cannot. We become churches, churchism, as opposed to Christians and serving and biblicists. And we so desperately need it. Again, we, we are presenting them. Unless they hear the voice of the Son of God, there'll be no life in them. Like Lazarus, dead in the grave for four days, right? And Lazarus was dead until Jesus got there. Your friends, your family, your co-workers, the people you're praying for, listen, they're lost. They're going to be dead until Jesus arrives. Until they allowed the voice of the Son of God to echo through their ears and place their faith in it. They will remain dead. It won't matter what you do. It won't matter the act or the show or the dog and pony show you put on, even though you should try all you can. But listen, you need to pray for their hearts, as we're going to see the problem with this man, and their conviction of sin. Because until they're convinced of their sin, they'll not be convinced of a Savior. That's why Jesus doesn't tell him I'm the Savior, because this man doesn't think he's a sinner. But let's keep going. We, we told... We hold a popular, albeit misinformed, position on Scripture, which is part of our problem, or a large part of our problem. We would never say that we don't believe in the power of the Scriptures, but our belief is betrayed by our actions. Again, we put a lot of emphasis on what we do as opposed to what we really, really believe about the Scriptures. Would you agree with me that if uh, Jesus, would you agree with me that Jesus holds a correct position on the Scriptures? That his position, his theology of scriptures is actually correct. And that anywhere we differ from Jesus' position on the scriptures that you and I are not, are off. And as far off as we are from what he says, so far we are off from where we ought to be. So Jesus says some startling stuff about the Bible. Again, I reiterate, how could we possibly call ourselves followers of Christ and not hold the same position on this text of scripture that Jesus held? 
So Jesus is wrong about that? But you're his follower? Hmm. Seems incongruent to me. Jesus said some crazy stuff. Uh, as far as our modern theology goes with Scripture, that we really, really need to adhere to. For as surely I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. So let's check that out. We still have earth, and as far as I can tell, heaven's still out there. So it hasn't happened yet. And until that happens, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. The word law there is an is, is a encompassing word. First of all, they use the word law to refer to the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. And then they would use it to refer to the entire Old Testament, which, by the way, at this point, is the only testament that is in existence, as Jesus says this. So do you have the same position on the Old Testament as Jesus did? That it not only is correct, it is correct down to the letter and to the sub-letter, because that's what he's saying here. The, the jot, as he calls it there, is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's the size, and it occupies the same place in the sentence structure as a, an apostrophe. It's actually not a punctuation, though. It's actually a letter. In, in our language, it would be the, it represents the Y, the Y sound, the, the jot the jot is very, very small. It's the smallest letter in the entire Hebrew alphabet. And Jesus is saying this because it could be possible that that could be passed over. It's so small. So I forgot a punctuation. I forgot an apostrophe. Who hasn't done that? Well, he's saying, so in the translation of the text, is it possible that we could have left out a Y? He says, no. Because why? Because nothing, that's not possible because God's in charge of his text. Not us, not our translators. God is. But he doesn't just stop there. Not just the smallest letter. He also adds the word tittle. A tittle is a small line that distinguishes between letters. The difference between a capital F and a capital E, you picture those in your head, is a tittle. It's that little line at the bottom. The difference between a C, capital C, and an E is a tittle. That's what that is. Jesus says not only does the smallest letter, but the smallest pieces of individual letters will not fall out of the law until their whole, the whole thing is fulfilled. Now, do you hold the same position on the text of Scripture that Jesus does? You should. You should because either you're right and Jesus needs to get in line or Jesus is right and you need to get in line. You really should. You need to decide who's the Lord here, who's following who. And you may say, well, Jesus is overstating things here because he often did. And I won't disagree with that. He often told stories that were way overstated so that he could get people's attention because the punchline was the ultimate thing. He would give them a scenario that would never happen in their culture or actually in real life so that they would actually listen. And then he would bring them home to stuff. He'd say, well, that's doing the same thing here. Oh, no. He doesn't throw around words, first of all, the way you and I do. And very particularly in this case, he uses this exact argument to defeat the whole brain trust of the Pharisees in one phone fell swoop. You, you know the story. You may not know he uses the letter. But he, this is the story here in Mark 12. So, so constantly throughout his ministry, he's being berated with questions. They're always trying to trap him and always trying to catch him in his words and use something against him. You know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, bad guys. And only once does Jesus turn the, turn the tables on them and ask them a question, just trying to get to their uh, arrogance of themselves and the scriptures. So he asked them a question that they would have known these scriptures. They would have not known the answer to it. And that's why he pigeonholes them. Why do the teachers of the law, he asks these, these guys, say that the Messiah is the son of David? Do you know the answer to that question? Because that's what it says. 
It very clearly says that Jesus, that the Messiah is going to be the descendant of David. And the problem about it is, is that he's the descendant of David, but he's also the creator of David. And that's where this argument is going, because he goes on to say, David himself, speaking of the Holy Spirit, speaking about the Messiah, said, the Lord said to my Lord, oh, wait a minute, how could he be David's Lord and also be the descendant of David? So he didn't have this concept of the incarnation. See, the answer is very simply the incarnation. That's, it's, just, it's as simple as the explanation of the incarnation. I can't explain it to you, but it's that simple. So there you go. <laughs> that God himself became a man. That a descendant of David would be born to a virgin, predicted in the Old Testament. But that descendant of David wouldn't be, not, not, only, not only is he virgin born, he's also the son of God, forever coexistent with the father of the same essence, of the same nature, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one of the, of the Trinity, becomes a man to take our place, to die for us. And it's the story of the gospel. Because only God can save, right? But only man can die. And so God becomes a man in order to rescue us. It's the story of the gospel. But So he lays it out in front of them. Of course, they believe that the, that, that the Messiah is the son of the descendant of David. And at the same time, they know these verses, because this was a very common messianic verse. They never put two and two together. Wait a minute, how does David, who's the ancestor, call his... Great, 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 great grandson, the Lord. Because they, they're missing something in the theology. Why does he say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Like I said, the answer is the incarnation. But the point that I'm trying to make, the point is that Jesus hangs this entire argument. By the way, the result of this is, they, is what tells us over Matthew. Same story. Here's what Matthew adds to the whole story. No one could say a word in reply. Like I said, they, didn't, they couldn't wrap their brains around it. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> but but here's, here's, the, here's the deal I want to point out to you. The word my up there, the Lord said to my Lord, that is not a word in Hebrew. It is a word in English because that's the way we translate it. It is actually a single letter. It's that little jot. It is a modifier to one of the words. It's the modifier to the word Lord. Had it been left out, the argument would completely fall apart. But Jesus hangs the whole argument and derails the entire brain trust of the Pharisees with one letter. Don't tell me he's overstating it when he says one jot and one tittle because he backs it up with the way he handles himself. So again, is your position the same as Jesus's when it comes to, to the scriptures? Uh, letters matter because words matter. And words matter because sentences matter. And sentences matter because they make up messages. And the message is the whole thing. If our faith is in the messengers or the vehicle, it's misplaced. It is the message over which God is presiding down to the subletter. The subletter. And again, either Jesus knows the truth and, needs to get, or, and we need to get in line, or we know the truth and he needs to. Make your decision. The Bible, again, teaches us that it is the message, not the messenger, not the ministry, not the minister, that is the power of God. Place your faith. Place our faith where it belongs. So let's get back to this young man and the lessons. That's just a brief 30-minute introduction. Now we're ready for <laughs> the, this young man. So this young man is great. He, I say that because in his culture, because of the, the title that he's given, it says he's a ruler. So he's young and he's a ruler, and that's not a political position, it's a religious position. Remember, the, the political environment is ruled by the Romans during this time. So there was no place to be as a Jew, a ruler, in that, in that sense. 
Their ruler was completely, they allowed them to have authority over their religion. He was a ruler. He was the chief of a synagogue. To be young and do that tells us something. And, and the way Jesus deals with him, as opposed to a lot of these hypocrites, these Pharisees, Jesus deals very gently with this guy. This guy was something else. He really was. He, he was wholehearted in, in, in what he did. But he's missing something and unwilling to listen to the Savior on it. But, but he's a ruler. He's, he's, he's the head of his religion. He's reached the highest he could possibly go in that, in that religious culture. He's also very rich. And the Bible tells us very plainly that the riches, his riches are his God. But again, Jesus is very careful with him. He's very kind to him without saying you worship at the altar of money and stuff. He still puts his finger on it by just simply giving him a simple command. So you don't, well then go and sell it. If it's not your everything, then you won't have a problem going in and sell it. But of course, it was his everything. It was. And we hope and pray he didn't stay in that condition, but at least as far as the text is concerned, uh, he did. Go and sell. It's interesting. He, what he says to this young man, he doesn't say to the likes of Peter, even though he does say to Peter and this young man, come and follow me. But, but, but remember, Peter, when Jesus comes to him and says, come and follow me, what does Peter do? He leaves everything because you can't stay where you are and follow Jesus. Can't stay where you are. You can't stay Lord over your life and making your own decisions, fulfilling your own goals and dreams and follow Jesus, that's why you, the scripture says very plainly, you must deny yourself first, take up your cross, and then you can follow me. And not until then are you a disciple. You call yourself a disciple, listen, you're doing your things your own way, making your own plans, calling your own shots. You're not a disciple. You're not. By Jesus' definition, I think he's got a right to call it like he does. So what he says to Peter, or what he says to the rich young ruler, he doesn't say to Peter, same thing with Matthew. Matthew's working a tax collector. Very lucrative job, by the way. Jesus doesn't say leave everything. He just says come and follow me. But he does leave everything, doesn't he? Because he can't stay where he is and follow Jesus. He can't. But he does say leave everything to this man because that was the issue. See, I can't be your Savior, sir. As long as you've got yourself a Savior, you need to drop this Savior which is sending, dragging you to hell. Then I can, if I can interpret Jesus, then I can be your Savior. Not until then. Similar, by the way, if you want a good, a good cross-reference on this guy, what the kind of person that he was, great pictures, Apostle Paul, back when he was Saul. Young, ambitious, had risen through the ranks of his religious culture. He was everything that he could possibly be. Zealous. By the way, read it between the lines. Very rich. Did you know Paul was rich? Read it between the lines. You can't come up with any other scenarios. It tells us, among other things, in, in the scriptures, he was born a Roman citizen. That doesn't mean a whole lot to you, born here in America, where you just get born. Well, you, just because you were born in the Roman kingdom didn't mean you were Roman. Not even all Italians were born Roman citizens. Most people had to buy their way in. Most people, didn't matter what you were. And to be a Jew, like Paul's family was, and he was, to be born into Born into Roman citizenship means, oh boy, they are holding some purse strings in that culture. They are big movers and shakers. In addition, he also tells us in another place that he was sent by his parents to Jerusalem to be under the tutelage of a guy by the name of Gamaliel. He was the top, top guy in, in that religion. That's, that depicts a lot of cash, shall we say. You couldn't do that. You didn't just call Gamaliel and say, hey, I'm sending my boy down there. Oh, no. They had to know you. You had to be in, if you will. 
Paul comes from a tremendous amount of money. So, so really a great comparison between the rich young ruler uh, and, and another guy in the text is Paul or Saul. But he had all that stuff going for him, but he was headed to hell, wasn't he? He certainly was. Here's, uh, that's a verse I forgot to show you. No one can say one word in reply. We, we already went to that one, right? I backed up, I forgot. So the, the, the words of the Lord, let's, here, let's keep going because I've gotten ahead of myself. There we go. Paul's pedigree, here we go. Paul's pedigree, very similar to this guy. Circumcised on the eighth day, Paul says of himself. Stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blames. Same thing this guy says. He kept, if he knew what it was, he kept it. Knew what it was. He's the most religious of his culture of his day, the, the best he could possibly be of his, of his age group. And nevertheless, he was headed to hell. And God arrested him in that progress that he listened to him, knew he didn't, knew, finally found out he, didn't, he couldn't save himself and needed a savior because watch what happens to him. So he doesn't, Paul doesn't, he isn't told to leave everything, but he, he does. I'm just trying to say to you, the, the question that this guy is being asked to do is something that many people, many people have done. Whatever things were to gain to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. For indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So you gain the whole world, but lose your soul, you know, it's pretty sad. It's pretty sad. So, so would God ask any of us to give up all of our stuff in order to follow him? If it's dragging you to hell, of course. Of course he would. You're going to lose it anyway, right? No one gets to keep it. But you, it could cause, because your heart is, is bent on it, because you're sold out on it, because you're trusting it as your Savior, could cause you to go to hell. That's bad. So yeah, he would ask that if that's the condition. So Jesus holds him to his own words because words matter, right? Verse 18, he says, uh, the guy says this very convoluted statement here. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's really weird. So what must I do to inherit? Let's, any, any, any um, English teachers in here? So, well, you don't have to be an English teacher. Just, let's, let's, let's just be, let's, we've got logical people here. So if you're saying something that you have to do, but you're asking about inheritance, so either you're born in, either in the line of the bloodline or you're not. And if you're not in the bloodline, there's nothing you can do. You follow me? So either if you want to inherit the Waddell riches, you have to be of a Waddell breed. You follow me? Because if you're near the Joneses over there, as much as we love you, we're only in, our kids are getting our stuff. <laughs> hear, hear me on this. Only God's kids are getting his stuff. No one else. Amen. And if you're not in the bloodline, there's nothing you can do. He unknowingly makes the argument for what we know of, as Jesus says, the fact that you must be born again. You must be born into God's family and kingdom. There's not a work you can do, not a thing you can do, because if you're not in the bloodline, it doesn't matter what you do. You're not inheriting from God. Jesus says, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No hope of the kingdom of God apart from being born again. You have to submit yourself to that. Confess yourself to be a sinner as the scripture calls you that. And trust Jesus as a savior. And then his spirit births you 
Again, the guy unknowingly makes, makes an incredible argument. It's a great, great, uh, great argument. What must I do? But Jesus holds him down in particular on the word good. And we already talked about that. Good compared to what? Me to you? I'm gooder than you. You're gooder, you know, gooder than me. Especially my English. Or, or, or are we talking about good enough to go to heaven? Isn't that what's in question here? So we all agree that we're gooder than everybody else? No one's good enough for heaven. Only one is. That's God. If you're not God, then you're not welcome. So how do you get in? Now, now, we got the, now you understand the problem. You can't be good enough for heaven. Only God is. Everybody, the rest of us are some, something less than good. That's to be sure. But, so, so God holds them down on his own words. Jesus does. Because words matter, don't they? He's going to hold you down on your words. Again, it underscores the need you need for salvation. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Every word you say. We throw words around like they're nothing. Just throw them all, you know, good, this person's a good person, that person's a good person. Compared to what? Compared to you and me, maybe. Love, we say love all the time, way out of context. We say we love our husband and wife, which is appropriate. Then we say the same thing about Waterburger and the Dallas Cowboys and our <laughs> truck. You know? There ain't no sacred words anymore because we just flippantly throw them around. God is not like you or me. He doesn't throw words. He's very serious and very direct about his words, and he's going to hold us to those words. So God holds us to, Jesus holds the man to his own words, and then he holds the man to God's words, which is the most important thing here. Doesn't give him the same info, as we saw last time, as the woman at the well. The woman at the well starts talking about the Messiah, and what does Jesus say? I'm, I'm that guy. Here's a guy asking for salvation. He doesn't say, I'm your guy. Why is that? Say, so, well, Jesus didn't have it all straight back then. So you do? That's why I entitled the sermon series, Jesus on Evangelism, because Jesus is the evangelist, not you. So where you differ from Jesus on evangelism, you need to find a way to get, to the, get back to where he is, to be sure. So he doesn't tell, the, doesn't tell the man that he's the Messiah, because like I said, I've said, been saying all along, he already thinks he has a Savior. It's him. I'm good. I've kept the law better than most probably was. I've kept the law. I don't need a Savior. I have all these riches. They're, they're, they mark me as a person who's going to heaven. Don't talk to me about a Savior. I just need to make sure that my resume is straightened before I step out of this life. Because that's why he's coming to Jesus. Not, not for salvation. Not at all. He just needs a little bit of advice. So, so he cannot graduate to knowing Jesus as Savior because he's not passed conviction of sin 101. And very simply, that is, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Until you know that, Jesus isn't for you. You really can't tell somebody, have really doesn't do any good to tell somebody that they need a Savior if they don't think they need to be saved. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you're not convicted of your sin, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, one of the Trinity, you're not ready for the Son of God who is the second person of the Trinity. You're not ready for Him. You've not learned what the Scriptures teach you, and the Scriptures of the law teach one single thing, that you are a sinner. Galatians 3. If there had been a law given which could have given life, could have given you everlasting life, then truly righteousness would have been by the law. No such thing. But the Scriptures have confined all under sin. Just traps you. Boxes you in. And until you acknowledge that, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, then you're not let out of this box. You're not let out. He doesn't let the man out of the box. He doesn't let the man out from under the instruction of the law. That the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It goes on there, verse 23. Before faith came, 
We were kept under the guard by the law. It, it keeps you. It humbles you. Tells you nothing other than you're a sinner. God's laws are laws, period. If you break them, there's no way to fix them. The only way to do them is pay for them. And that requires an eternity in hell. It keeps us under. Kept that would be afterwards, the faith that would be revealed afterwards. Therefore, the law was our tutor. See, until you learn what the law teaches, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I'm not ready to hear the whole story of the Savior. I know I'm sick. I'm not interested in the cure, right? That doesn't make any sense. But this guy, of course, was claiming perfection. I've kept all those laws. But again, he hasn't learned what the Scriptures, what the law actually teaches. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, you've trashed the whole thing. All the laws have been broken for you. Heaven is not an option anymore if you've broken any of God's laws. So, so you plan to go to heaven. What's your plan? Hey, you're, I'm sure you've done more than one. No offense. I think you probably didn't, you know, you've broken these many times. But modern evangelism answers to the sinful world as opposed to the way Jesus handled this sinner. Modern evangelism's answer to the sinful world is to tell them that God loves them and has a plan for their lives. Jesus doesn't say that to this man. In fact, he never says that. He, he doesn't, not that he doesn't say that God loves us, but every time he deals directly with a sinner, he always deals with their sin. Because why? Until you're cornered by your sin, you'll have no need for a Savior. We're doing them no service, ladies and gentlemen, when we don't tell them about their sin. When we write it off to some other problem, when we say it's some other issue, when it say, we say that it's not their fault, you're not doing them any kind of service. We shouldn't condemn a sinner. They're already condemned. To tell them they're not condemned when they are in fact condemned is to not tell them the truth. And that is your, that's what you're supposed to be doing. We try to sell them on a better life. Jesus never did that. We try to sell them on better finances. Jesus never. Happier disposition, better marriage. Jesus never did that. I'm not saying those things can't happen in faith in Christ. But Jesus never, because that's not your problem. Your problem is you're lost. Your problem is you're dead in your, in your sins and trespasses. Problem is you're going to face a holy God. And until a person knows that, until a sinner knows that, listen, there will be no life in them. They will not hear the voice of the Son of God. They can't. Jesus on evangelism, very simply, is the world needs to be cornered by their sin. So, so you've stolen anything? Do you know there's a law against that? An eternal law? And that because you've broken it, there is an eternal consequence in a place called hell? But you plan to go to hell? You're, you're a thief and you plan to go to heaven. What's your plan? Corner them. Corner them in their sin. You've lied, right? Did you know there's a law against that? There's a law, and the penalty of that law is an eternity in hell. So you're a liar, and you plan to go to heaven. What's your plan? You, you've lusted. Jesus says lust is going to be judged in eternity the same as adultery. Uh-oh. You've hated, and yet Jesus says that you're the same, going to be judged the same as a murderer. Well, I don't think that's right. Well, guess what? It's not your heaven. It's not your eternity. It, it belongs to him. You're going to find out. You're going to have nothing to say in his presence. So, so you're, by your own confession, you're a lying, murdering, adultering thief, and you plan to go to heaven? What's your plan? What's your plan? See, just like this guy who is not perfect, maybe better than you, but not perfect. He didn't need stuff added to his life. He didn't need one more thing. He needed sin subtracted. That's what you need. That's what I need. 
You need sin subtracted, which only comes through our repentance and turning to Christ as the only Savior. Have you done that? Not too many years ago, there was a 67-year-old woman went into an optometrist's office. She was scheduled for a routine cataract surgery, having lots of problems with her eyes and dry eye, and she figured old age. And uh, so she went in with lots, lots of issues, hoping that this surgery is going to fix everything. And so the doctor, as she's examining her eyes, and he lifts her eyelid, you know, I mean, he's examining her eyes, and there's this blue mass underneath her upper, under, her upper eyelid. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say anything about the blue mass. He begins to ask her questions. Here's the question. He says, how long have you been wearing disposable contacts? Well, 35 years. He says, can you account for all your contacts? She said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I mean, I know you've replaced contacts, but can you account for the one you took out? Oh, you know, sometimes they fall out. Sometimes you forget you take them out or whatever. She had 27 contacts wadded up underneath her eyelid. She still had to have cataract surgery because if you injure your eye like that, it's going to grow cataracts just so you know. But you can increase it, you know. You're not going to slow them down, but you can definitely speed them up. And she had sped them up. But it, it, interesting commentary on what we're studying today. So this guy comes to Jesus and says, I just need one more thing to add into my life to make sure I have everlasting life. Tell me what that is. This woman every day is adding another contact to an eyeball that wasn't seeing very well. But, you know, just the, the solution is just to add one more contact because, hey, she didn't need any more things added to her life. She needed things subtracted from her life. This young man needed sin subtracted. Not one more good thing that he can hope in that he's going to be able to save himself through, but instead placing his entire hope on a Savior who could subtract, only could subtract the sin that he committed up to that point and forevermore. I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. Close your eyes with me. Jesus is the Savior, but he may not be your Savior. Jesus is the Savior. You may know him as the Savior, but he may not be your Savior. You may have called him Savior, may have called him Lord, but he may not be your Savior. So you have to have a personal encounter with him in which you trust him to be your Savior. I've got a man here in the Scriptures who's coming to the Savior, asking the most important question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And yet he walks away without salvation. It's possible to be that close to Jesus and yet miss him. There has to be a place where you acknowledge the truth about yourself. You're a sinner. Deserving hell. Desperately in need of a Savior. Jesus alone is that Savior. Have you trusted him? That means you've got to stop trusting everything else. You've got to leave everything else behind if it's waiting, whatever it is. Whatever, I, whatever was to my gain, as Paul says, I now consider loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Savior. Can you say that today in, in your heart of hearts before God? I've trusted Jesus as my Savior. God, I thank you that when we call out to you, just like your word says, all those who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. When we call to you as you really are, knowing who we really are, God, you rush your salvation to us. Your new birth immediately takes place in our lives. Thank you for the great assurance we have through your word because your word will not fail. That great assurance we have through that faithful word. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptistchurch.org.